are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, hello, everybody. Sorry to keep you waiting for an hour, but today we've done something different. Instead of starting at 12 noon, West Coast time on the United States, Today, we're starting at one o'clock West Coast time, and we're going to do that today, and we're going to do that next Thursday, and then after that, we're going to get back to our normal meeting at 12 noon on Thursday afternoons, 12 noon West Coast time. I don't know where you're joining me from. I want to thank all the people who have waited, the people who have been in the chat. Um, Thank you for doing that. Uh, because we did this with a little less notice than we would like to do. But again, we're very, very pleased that you could be joining us today. Lead question today is, does God favor men over women? And this question comes from Tara Lorene Davenport, who asked this question. A good afternoon, David. Does God favor men over women? Why did he curse women harsher When he had never been in relationship with Eve as father, he spoke to Adam, but not to Eve. Thank you. All right. Well, Tara, let me begin in answering your question. Uh, I think your question is good. It's definitely worth asking. Um, Now, I'm going to deal with the Genesis aspect in just a bit, but but I want to deal with the bigger question first. There's no doubt that throughout the Bible— Men are more prominent than women. And this could make some people think that God pays more attention to men than women or that God favors men over women. But let me just step back and say that in the bigger perspective, the Bible's history focuses on what we could call the movers and the shakers more than common people in everyday life. The stories of women are present in the Bible, of course, but look, we've got to admit they're not prominent, but we could say the same thing of uh, slaves, of children, of Vikings, or the predecessors to the Vikings, and other European tribes. We could say the same of everyday farmers in Bible times. They don't get a lot of attention or representation. You could say there's some reference to them in the Bible, and I would even say people in distant lands such as Vikings or other European tribes. There's some mention of them in the Bible, but they're certainly not prominent. Now, today in the writing of history, it's popular to give attention to people in groups that haven't received a lot of attention to to say, well, let's not just look at the movers and shakers. But I just got to say, that's not how the Bible was written. The Bible was written with a focus on the people that were most consequential, had the most uh, impact or influence in those times and situations. And of course, there's people around them that get attention as well, but it focuses on the rulers, the kings, the prophets, of whom the great majority were men. But I need you to understand, that doesn't mean that God favors those people more than he does everyday people. Uh, including women. You you see, what Peter says in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, is true. Uh, In truth, I see that God shows no partiality. Friends, it's been said, and I think it's true, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And throughout the Bible, God shows his care and attention to those who are otherwise ignored. I love what it says in Psalm 72, verse 13. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. I mean, I could go to scripture after scripture again and again, talking about God's care for the orphan, for the widow, for the disadvantaged, for the foreigner, for the the oppressed, whatever it would be. God over and over again says, I'm a God who doesn't show partiality, number one. And number two, I'm a God who cares for those who are otherwise overlooked. So even though the Bible account gives more attention to the movers and shakers, the Bible at the same time is very zealous to say that God has his attention, his care, his concern 
on all. Now, if I could, let me reference the Genesis account. Uh, Tara, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know that we can say that the curse regarding the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, <coughs> excuse me, was harsher to that than that which was pronounced against the men. Now, I got to say, it was certainly more specific, connected with the pain of bearing children, uh, where he says, uh, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, look, that's certainly a significant curse. We don't want to deny that, and its effect has been seen in the human race and among women ever since. But we shouldn't neglect the fact that Adam had his own curses that affected Adam and, in some sense, the whole human race. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This curse of um, futility, a, a sense of futility that would plague and curse the human race, uh, I think in some way can especially apply to men. Not, not that it's theirs exclusively, but no more would you say that, um, that uh, th there's aspects of the curse given to women that, that men know uh, other than, of course, the, the aspect of pain and childbirth. You see, both of them were cursed. I think it's hard to judge which one was cursed worst. But most importantly, if Adam had any prominence in the relationship that he held with Eve, God held Adam responsible for the fall of the human race. You know, it's really striking how later on in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5 makes this clear. I, I took another look at it, and I, I got to say I was really struck, maybe even surprised, at how prominent this idea was. Romans chapter 5 in verse 12, through one man sin entered the world. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam. Verse 14, the transgression of Adam is the issue. Verse 15, by one man's offense, many died. Uh, verse 16, Adam was the one who sinned. Verses 17 and 18, Adam supplied the one man's offense. Uh, verse 19, Adam is the one disobedient man. And then you could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, where it says that in Adam, all humanity dies. Adam bore the responsibility of the fall of the human race, not Eve. So whatever favor Adam may have enjoyed in being the head or the leader in his relationship with Eve, I think is answered by the greater responsibility that he had. You see, Adam was responsible for the fall of humanity, not Eve. If God favored him with greater leadership, then God also favored Adam with greater responsibility and judgment uh, because he was liable to a greater judgment. I also want you to know that I don't find any evidence in Genesis that Adam had a relationship with God that Eve did not have. You can only say that that's true in one sense, that Adam had an earlier relationship with God than Eve. The fact that God created Adam first and that Eve was created second and out of Adam, well, that was no accident. And according to the New Testament, it has great significance. You'll find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8, 9, and 10. But once Eve was created, there's no evidence at all that she had an inferior relationship with God. You see, I want to remind you as well that the dominion mandate of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, was given to both Adam and Eve. Let me read that to you. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
Notice it's very specifically said there that God blessed them and said to them. So that dominion mandate, well, that's given to both Adam and and Eve. And as well, when God came to the garden in the cool of the day to fellowship with both Adam and Eve, he, he did it with both of them, not just Adam. Look, I I would say it like this, that God has designed men and women somewhat differently. It's wrong to exaggerate the differences, but it's also wrong to ignore the differences. And God has commanded male headship, I believe the Bible teaches this, that God has commanded male headship in certain circumstances. The, The headship of the husband in a marriage and in the family and the headship of qualified men in the church. But in both of those places, God places an appropriate accountability on the man, matching with whatever authority is appropriate. Friends, God never appoints authority without also commanding accountability and a greater judgment. God has given men and women both some unique privileges and unique responsibilities. And I think each of them will be held account for those. I like what Elizabeth Elliot said. She said, people want to know who's better, men or women. And this is what she said. She said, a man is better at being a man and a woman is better at being a woman. I'm sure she wasn't the first one to say it, but that's who I heard that saying through. Now, let, let me say a final thing here. What I fear is behind Tara's question, and Tara, if you're listening right now, I want to speak to you. What I fear is behind that question is not so much does God favor men more than women, but perhaps uh, the question is maybe God doesn't favor me. I want you to know that there's a real sense in which the most favored person in all history was a woman. Of course, I'm speaking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I have biblical grounds for saying this. It was to Mary that Gabriel, the messenger of the Lord, said this in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, rejoice, highly favored one. Now, the specific Greek word that's used there for highly favored one is a form of the word for grace in the New Testament. And wonderfully, that word is used generally of all believers in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, that in believers, they are all accepted in the beloved. Let me read that to you, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Friends, I want you to understand that even though the story of the Bible focuses more on movers and shakers, God specifically says that he has care, concern, and even favor towards all humanity. And at wonderful places in his redemptive plan has focused that favor upon some women. But in Jesus Christ, All believers can have the status of highly favored. That same word is used in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, and in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. It's an amazing, wonderful, glorious thing that God gives us. What I would say to Tara, I would say to all as believers, you are highly favored in Jesus Christ. So I hope that's helpful for you. Um, Again, Thanks so much for uh, asking that, Tara. It's a great question. And let me move on now to the questions that are in the side chat. Okay, I I got a question, first of all, from Marilyn, who asks this. Hello, Pastor David from Louisiana. Will you please explain the first fruits and how it's spoken out in the New Testament? Thanks. Okay, wow. Well, Marilyn, I, I don't know if I can remember every mention, but I can remember one specific mention of the first fruits in the New Testament. First of all, the concept of fruits, first fruits was an aspect of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And at the beginning of the harvest, the farmers in Israel were to bring the first 
portion of their harvest, that which grew up first. And they were to bring it to the Lord as a special sacrifice of, Lord, here's the first fruits of my harvest. Dedicating to God the first was a way of dedicating it all to him, of honoring God. So it was a uh, thing of gratitude. It was a thing of honoring the Lord by giving a first. It was a thing of generosity, the temple. But this offering of first fruits was instituted by God as a thing of the harvest. And, And here's the thing to understand, is that the giving of the first represented a, um, represented the entire harvest to come. So, Lord, I'll give to you the first fruits, and that represents all of the coming harvest that will be yours. Now, in the New Testament, this is used in in a couple ways. Uh, First of all, the Jewish people are called a first fruits that have come to God uh, in recognition, a smaller portion of those who came to Christ. Let's remember that for the first, I don't know, 30 years of Christianity, just about, all the believers were of a Jewish background. That Gentiles didn't start coming into the church for some 20 or 30 years. after. Maybe it was more like 20, not 30 years. Uh, but not for several years after the institution of the church did Gentiles start coming into the church. And that that group of Jews was a first fruits of the greater harvest to come among the nations. But, but then it's also said of Jesus Christ being a first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus was the first one resurrected. And even as his resurrection is a representation of a much greater, at least numerically speaking, greater uh, resurrection to come among all the people of God on the last day. So really, uh, Marilyn, the whole idea of first fruits centers around the offering or the presentation of a smaller portion being given to the Lord uh, in representation of a larger portion to come. And it's used sort of uh, typologically in a few places in the New Testament with that very idea. Okay, Marilyn, thanks for that question. Hope that's helpful for you. Next question comes from Laura, who asks. Um, Adam and Eve were created by God without sin. Were they also created with knowledge of what's right and wrong? Why did Eve sin if she was created sinless? Okay, well, um, Laura, you got to consider this. Adam and Eve were created without sin, but they were created also with the capability, with the possibility to sin. Um. God created humanity not with a sinful nature, and I'm talking about Adam and Eve. The the rest of us are different because we're descendants from Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve were created as sinless beings, but with those that had the capability or the potential to sin. Um, Therefore, Eve, you could say, accessed or used that capability to sin when she, in fact, sinned. Uh, uh, you could say that Eve sinned first, but for whatever reason, in God's redemptive plan, her sin really wasn't accounted for the fall of the human race. The Bible makes it very clear, as I spoke about before, that uh, Adam is held responsible for the fall of the human race. So, um, were they created with a knowledge of what's right and what's wrong? Yes, yes, they had conscience. And when Adam sinned, and if you want to say Eve sinned before him, uh, th- they had some knowledge of what they were doing. Now, Eve's situation was somewhat different because as 1 Timothy chapter 2 explains, she was deceived. Adam didn't have deception involved in his sin. He sinned with his eyes wide open. So no, the, the right way to understand it, Laura, is that Adam and Eve were created with the capability to sin. And, and why did God create them with that capability? Well, I would say in one sense, ultimately, it was in God's plan to allow sin in the created world because God wanted to bring forth something greater than uh, a world of innocence. God wanted to bring forth a world of redemption, and a world of redemption is greater than the world of innocence. Uh, God's work of redemption is greater than his work of creating innocent beings, And I would say this, that redeemed men and women are greater than innocent men and women. In order to bring forth this greater thing, God had to allow sin. 
And, and in addition, that, that's one aspect of it, but there's another important aspect that God allowed it because he wanted um, a, a, a real choice to humanity. God wanted humanity to be able to choose to obey him or not. not, not merely being programmed to obey him, merely being programmed to love him. God wanted some volition, some choice in the matter. So he created human beings with the capability of real choice, seen in Adam and Eve, and I believe seen in human beings today, that we have real choices to make, that we're not just pre-programmed by God to do whatever he determines us to do, but we have, as human beings, real choices. And the greatness of God's unfolding plan is he has a way of um, coordinating the real choices that men and women make with his perfect and unfolding and sovereign plan. So thanks for that question there, Laura. Next question comes from Caleb. Uh, hello, pastor. This is Caleb from Virginia. Is fasting in the Bible a command or perhaps a suggestion with benefits to it? Caleb, th there is not a general command for fasting uh, Israel was commanded to fast once. Well, I'll take that back. In the Mosaic law, it says that on the day of atonement, they were to afflict their souls. And that was interpreted by the rabbis to mean fasting, but it doesn't specifically say fasting in the Mosaic law. So I, I can't think of a specific command, but let me say this. It, I, I wouldn't call it a command in the scripture, but I would say it's an expectation God expects that his people would fast. It's just there. You see this very plainly in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus speaks about how we should conduct ourselves before God, how we should do our, our practices of our faith rightly before God, he talks about how we will pray, how we will give, and how we will fast. And again, Jesus says those just expecting that his followers would do these things. He expected that his followers would pray. He expected that his followers would give, that is, they would be generous. And he expected that his followers would fast. So I, I don't know if I would specifically say that it's a command, but it certainly is an expectation in the scriptures that the followers of Jesus Christ would uh, fast. There's not specific fast days commanded, but the expectation is there that they would. I'll take the opportunity to do what I've do before, done before. I want to show you all a book that my father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom, has written that you can get this on Amazon, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. And uh, folks, this is a good book. It's been helpful to many people about fasting. My father-in-law, Nils, is a man who through the decades, for many decades, has had a lot of experience with fasting. And he's taught me and many other people a lot about the practice. So um, I recommend this book. You can get it on Amazon, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer by Nils Bergstrom. And uh, so again, I, I would just summarize it by that. It's, it's an expectation of scripture. A and let's face it, fasting is a truly neglected practice among believers. Uh, believers need to get more serious about this. All right, next question comes from Brian. Uh, he says, who are the elect in Matthew chapter 24 that Jesus will gather from around the world after the tribulation has ended? Okay, well, Brian, um, the answer to that question depends on a person's um, end times perspective, uh, eschatological perspective. Now, I'm happy to answer it from my perspective. But, you know, th there's a lot of different perspectives about such things in the Christian world and I just want to uh, emphasize that in my answer, I'm not trying to speak for all Christians of all perspectives, but I'm certainly happy to speak from my perspective, which I would define as uh, premillennial. That is, I believe that, that Jesus Christ is going to, that the reign of Jesus Christ is going to happen all over this world. Jesus is reigning as king, but his reign will be fully realized as he actually reigns over this earth for a thousand years and then beyond. Okay, so I believe that, that the reign of Jesus on this earth in its most manifest form 
Uh, Not that Jesus doesn't reign right now. There's certainly a sense in which he does, but it'll be fully realized uh, after his glorious second coming. And and then I'm also, within that pre-millennial camp, I'm also of the persuasion of a pre-tribulational rapture. And and again, I'm not going to get in all the details right now. Brian, uh, even believing that uh, believers are caught up uh, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, that believers will be caught up. I, I believe that'll happen before this tribulation that, that's spoken of, this final seven-year period. E- even believing that, I also believe that there will be many, many people who come to faith during the Great Tribulation. M- matter of fact, w- when John surveys that group in heaven, it's a multitude that can't be numbered. So many people will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. And I would just simply say that that's the elect that Jesus will gather from around the world after the tribulation or at the conclusion of the tribulation. Uh, Simply there. That's how I would answer that question. Um, It's those who are uh, believers who have survived the great tribulation. That's simply how I would answer that. Um. Roland with seven asks, question, I'm trying to find a church to attend. What things should I be looking for? Well, you know, Roland with seven, the two great hallmarks of the Christian life are truth and love. And so you want a church that's committed to God's truth. A church that takes the Bible seriously that, that teaches it well. Now, I, I got to admit, it, it's a little bit difficult for people finding churches today because you can go online and watch videos of the best preaching and teaching in the world. And, and it's kind of easy to go to a local church and compare the pastor of a local church with the greatest preachers and teachers of our day, however somebody would define that, and say, well, he doesn't measure up. Well, no fooling, we don't measure up. You know, we're just everyday preachers and teachers. And so you, you got to avoid the trap of, of thinking that, um, seeing that if your church cares about truth means that the pastor needs to preach like Charles Spurgeon or whatever great preachers you believe there are in the world today. I I would just say they take the Bible seriously. That's one thing, the truth end, but you you shouldn't neglect the love end either. You know, it's possible to have a church that talks about the Bible all day long. You know, man, they are all in on the Bible, yet there's not a lot of love there. And, And that's a church that's funky. And, and some people would say, well, the, the love in the church is more important than the truth. The truth is more important than the love. Look, the truth is that they're both important. Truth and love. And one church may be a little bit stronger in one than the other. But, but I would say this, that ideally, believers are committed to a local church. Ideally, I, look, we understand there's some people who are invalid. There's some people who, for whatever reason... Church, just it's just not happening. There's okay. I'm just, I'm just speaking ideally. Ideally, believers will plug into the best church for them and their family uh, within a practical distance for them to drive to and attend, and they would commit to that kind of church. So I I, I would look at those two things, Roland. Um, Truth and love. I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to denominational labels. You know, you, you start rolling into this, you know, the Methodist, the Baptist, the Presbyterian, the, you know, whatever, the, the, the church tradition that I come from and that I'm very happy to align myself with, with the Calvary Chapel Church. You can't just say because a church has Calvary Chapel or Baptist or Methodist on, on the church sign that it's a good church or it's a bad church. You, you got to check it out. It really so much depends on the leadership of that church. Do they take the scripture seriously? Do they 
cultivate an atmosphere of love in the congregation? Do they really promote it? Um, so those are things that I would look for. Not so much paying attention to denominational labels in the practical business of finding a church. I got to say that seems to mean less and less as the years go by, but really just checking the church for yourself. Hope that's helpful for you, Roland, with seven. Next question. Oh, a viewer has asked if there's an update on Keith and Paul. Look, last week I gave a special prayer request uh, that you all would pray for two special situations, Keith and Paul. Uh, And I didn't go into any details about their medical situation. So let me give you an update. First of all, let me say thank you for praying. Thank you. And I'm very happy to say that Paul has made a good, strong recovery. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Again, I just say praise the Lord for Paul's good, strong recovery. And thank you for praying. Uh, Keith is not in the same dangerous condition that he was in uh, last week when I asked you to pray. but, But his condition still is not good. So if you could just remember to pray for uh, my dear friend, my brother Keith, uh, and his family, uh, well, that would, that would be a blessing. And friends, it, I, I just want to be real with you. That's how it is when we pray for God to help and to heal. Um, sometimes we see a demonstrable blessing right away. Other times we don't. It doesn't discourage us, doesn't make us say, well, I'm not going to pray anymore unless I see... Uh, an encouraging answer, you know, right away, all the time. No, no. We, we pray, we ask God, and then we leave it up to his grace, his power, his wisdom. But I just want to say thank you so much, those of you who prayed. Uh, next question coming in from an unpronounceable uh, screen name, Chirez or something, uh, who asks, how do I become more determined, committed to obeying God? All right, Chiris, that's a very broad question, a little bit difficult to answer. So I'm just going to answer you with the thing that comes to mind immediately. Okay, I'll just give you my first impression. Boom, just first thing. Chiris, I would say give attention to some little things. You know, so often when we think of of, uh, um, being determined and committed in our obedience to God, we're, we're, we're thinking of just some huge area, some big sacrifice. And let me tell you, there, of course, are times when God does call us to such significant or huge sacrifice. Uh, of course, that's true. But don't miss the power of how God works through small acts of obedience in our life. So, church, just Think about the small ways that you can honor God and obey him in your everyday life. Just just say, Lord, show me how I can obey you better in the small things. Open my eyes to it. Instead of thinking of the big, grandiose things, give attention to small ways to obey and honor the Lord. And, And what you'll do is you'll start establishing patterns habits in your life of greater obedience, of greater commitment to the Lord. So um, that's just the thing that comes to my heart. Again, it's a pretty broad question. I, I don't know how I can answer it more than that, but that's just what comes to my mind and to my heart right away. Cheers. Just simply ask the Lord, Lord, show me how to obey you and show my commitment to you in little things, little ways. And, and I think God will do a great work in your life through that. All right, next question comes from Laura, who asks, how is the presence of God manifest in our life? Is it tangible? Okay, Laura, I would say this, not normally. Um, If you describe tangible as something that you can sense with your senses or just have an overwhelming sense of, um, no, I I don't think that normally the presence of God is manifest in our life that way. I I do think that there's times and places 
we, we could say this biblically. We can also say this from the testimony of many people throughout history and maybe perhaps from our own personal experience that there's times and places where we just have a great sense of the presence of God. Look, we're not expecting to hear an audible voice from God. We're not expecting a visible appearance of the Lord in front of us. We're not expecting to, to feel a physical touch from God as if his hand is on our shoulder or something like that. Listen, people who seek after such things often fall into deception because they're almost inviting Satan to deceive them with uh, uh, pseudo uh, examples of God's presence, uh, false examples of God's presence. But, but without seeking after things in such superstitious or ungodly ways, th there's certainly been times in my life where I've just had this um, hard-to-define, wonderful, majestic sense of the presence of God, and it's very hard to articulate. But because, Laura, it's not tangible, or it hasn't been for me, but all, all I can say is this just marvelous, powerful, inward sense of the presence of the Lord. Now, Laura, that, that's not something that um, I expect every day. No, it, it's just not. And it's certainly not something that I try to create, like, you know, drum it up. Oh, if I get really intense, if I do this, if I do that. No, no, no I think that those are traps. But look, we, we just seek after the Lord. <laughs> we believe his promise that he's with us. Laura, I know that the Lord is with me. Why? Because Jesus promised his people that he would be with us even unto the end of the age. That's what he says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Praise the Lord. I believe his promise. I don't need a physical sensation. Now, are there times when I have had a great sense of the presence of God, sort of physically, tangibly, or, or I don't know if it's physically is really the right word, but in a real sense, absolutely there's been times. But um, it's, it, it can be a great trap to seek after that. Um, so normally, I would say we understand the presence of God in our life by faith. Because we simply believe his promise. We believe what Jesus has said. And uh, we rest in that. And normally by faith. And there are times when God, so to speak, makes it manifest. And we have a very difficult to articulate sense that the Lord is present. Hope that's helpful for you there, Laura. Next question comes from Dan, who asks, can you speak on the importance of group prayer like Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter two? Dan, uh, I'm in favor of group prayer. I want to go down on record for that. <laughs> Dan, it's a great thing. And I believe that there's great power in group prayer w when it's done right. And, and I think that the power in group prayer can be explained through the principle of agreement. And friends, I, I can't remember chapter and verse in the Gospels uh, of this specific citation, but Jesus spoke of the power that there is when any two or more believers agree together in prayer. And there's just something powerful in that, spiritually speaking, when believers agree together in prayer, believing God together for something, believing that God is doing something or will do something. There's great, great power in that. Um, it, it reflects the unity of God's people. It reflects a principle that you see in um, the Old Testament where God said something to this effect. Now, I'm paraphrasing and not getting it quite right, but in principle, this is how the verse goes, where God says, uh, one of you shall put a hundred to flight and two of you shall put a thousand to flight. Again, I, I may not be right on those numbers, but that's the general principle. Now, if one of us would put a hundred to flight, th then Two of us should put 200, but there's some multiplication of the principle there. Two are mightier than one and one together. The, the sum is greater than the individual parts. And so, Daniel, I think that this is a big aspect of 
the power of prayer in a group. Now, this means that when a group of people come together for prayer, it should not be, let, let's say there's a prayer meeting with, with five people in it. it. It shouldn't be five people having their own individual prayer meeting, but they just happen to be in the room. No, but it should be a concerted thing where they come together. They, they say, okay, we're going to pray for this. Why should we believe that God would answer such a prayer? Understanding some promise or principle from the scriptures, agreeing together on that and praying. And, and maybe just one person in the group would pray for that thing. But all of the rest of the people who aren't praying, they're not just passively waiting for that person to stop talking so that they can say something. Instead, they're actively agreeing in prayer. They're saying, yes, Lord. Yes, I agree with my brother says. I'm putting my heart, my soul together in agreement with my brother or my sister's prayer. So that principle of agreement in prayer, I think really um, shows or really uh, speaks to the importance of group prayer. And, and things together in a prayer meeting, a, a gathering together of people for prayer, they really should do what they can to uh, maximize, so to speak, that principle of agreement in prayer. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Dan. That's some of my thoughts on that. Next question comes from uh, Mama Mia, who asks, is there a connection symbolically or otherwise between the priestly garments and the armor of God. Mama Mia, I love your question because I love a question that gives me something that I've never really thought before. And Mama Mia, I'm going to say, I, I don't see an immediate connection. I mean, obviously, the connection for the armor of God, as Paul uses that phrase, in Ephesians 6, and I think also in Colossians, he makes mention of the armor of God. The connection is not so much with the priestly garments, but with the outfitting of a soldier in Paul's day, a Roman soldier. There's some overlap in that some of the same terminology is used, such as the priest had a breastplate, but the, the breastplate of the priest wasn't protective, the, the, the garments for the priests were, as it says in Exodus, for glory and beauty, not for protection, not, not for warfare. And so, um, Mama Mia, I'm going to say that there's really not much connection there because the purposes were different. I, I come back to that idea in Exodus where it says that the priestly garments, including the high priestly garment, um, was made for for glory and beauty. And that's really not the reason for the armor of God or for uh, a soldier's armor in Paul's day or otherwise. But man, that's a great question. Maybe I'll give it some future consideration, but thank you very much for that, uh, that very good question. As I say, I love these questions that come from things that I haven't thought of before. Thank you for that. Next question comes from Banks, who asks... I discussed Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 with a Calvinist friend. And I said that God won't believe for a man, and the act of faith is a man's own. He sees that as taking credit for one's salvation. He says that man plays no part. How could one respond to this? Well, Banks, I'll tell you how I would respond. Um, first of all, I would just insist very vigorously that faith is not a work. And sometimes some of our Reformed or Calvinistic brethren, not all of them, of course, but sometimes I think that they um, they blur the lines on that. I might say they're confused, but maybe they're not confused, but it's not a clear distinction. Faith is not a work. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is not a meritous act that saves me. It's simply receiving by faith what God freely gives in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing um, in that that's like a, a, a work that deserves merit or credit or, or wins something or buys something. 
It simply receives. It simply believes. So on the one hand, I would just insist that faith is not a work, but, but Banks, I, I think you said it very well. And, and I, I'm surprised that um, your, your Calvinist friend objected to this. What you said that God won't believe for a man is absolutely true. And, and if there's anybody waiting around for God to believe for them, if there's anybody around there waiting around for God to repent for them, th that's not how God works. Now, I, I, I totally agree, and I understand maybe the more level-headed Calvinist who, who would say, no, God simply inspires or directs a man to believe. Okay, great. But, but that person who believes isn't conscious of that at that time. They don't say, whoa, wait. God's making me believe. I got to believe. Come on now. That's not how it works. We live in the real world. And the Bible connects with the real world. It speaks to the real world. So, so whatever God may be doing behind the scenes, a man or a woman has a choice. I'm going to believe on Jesus Christ or I'm going to reject him. Believe on him. And then when they believe on him, somebody may come afterward and say, you know, you couldn't do that unless God enabled you to do it. Okay, great, whatever. But, but anybody who's waiting around for God to believe for them, anybody who's waiting around to God, for God to repent for them, uh, that's just not how it works at all. And again, more, more level-headed Calvinists and Reformed brothers and sisters I know understand that I, I'm a little bit at a loss to say why your Calvinist friend would not. So, no, I would, um, I, I would be very strong on that. Thank you for that question there, Banks. All right, uh, Dan asks a question. Good evening, Pastor Guzik. I'm part of a, I'm a part-time pastor with a 40-plus congregation in Amsterdam. How do I know that I'm being called as a full-time pastor meant to leave my secular job? Oh, Dan, good question. First of all, I want to say that as someone who lived and served uh, the Lord in Europe for several years, God bless you for your work there in Amsterdam. Matter of fact, I, I've got a friend who pastors a congregation there uh, outside of Amsterdam near Schiphol, the airport, and um, he was in a similar situation for much of his ministry life. He was bivocational, working full-time, and then also serving the Lord. Um, and I also want to say, praise the Lord, Dan, for your congregation. Look, I, I, I know how it works. O on an American scale, when you say people, uh, a congregation of 40 people plus, Americans might not be that impressed. Dan, you and I know that's a wonderful work of God in a place like the Netherlands. So praise the Lord for that. God bless you, Dan. I love hearing this. Um, how do you know when you're being called to be a full-time pastor? Listen, uh, Dan, I think there's a few things. Uh, to come right down to it, there's two aspects. There's the leading of the Holy Spirit, and then there's the practicality of it. Now, number one, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Dan, there's lots of godly men who pastor bivocationally and do so um, forever. So you, you shouldn't think that that's not real service to the Lord, not qualified. No, it's honorable. It's glorious. Now, it's difficult. And I understand the challenge. There's been seasons in my life, not very long ones, to be honest, but there have definitely been seasons where I've been bivocational in ministry. And it is. It's a challenge. It's difficult. And I know uh, from my friendships with many, many men who are in that situation that it's, it's just not easy. So I appreciate that greatly. Um, so there's no command that you be fully supported by the ministry, but I think that in, in many ways, it's better. I would put it this way. It's a goal to work towards unless the Lord makes it clear to you that you shouldn't. I do know men who have told me, David, I think God wants me to keep working my secular job. and can, Their church is fully capable of supporting them full time, but they feel led of the Lord to say, no, we are going to... Um, uh, continue, I'm going to continue to work my secular job, and, and those resources will, will go to other things. Listen, that can be very much led of the Lord. 
So I think first you just got to go by a sense of spiritual intuition. Now, of course, you, you got to go by as well that God will make that clear to the other leaders in your church. And I don't know your church organization. I don't know if elders or deacons or whatever, but other people who are leaders in the church, either formally or informally, it, it would be understood among them as well. Uh, and then there's the practical matter. I mean, can the church actually afford it? W would it put too much strain on your family if you had to reduce your salary? Or, or are you going to wait until you can meet your same salary? I, I don't know. But just think of it in terms of the spiritual and the practical. I'd put the spiritual first without neglecting the practical. And um, I'm going to pray, Dan, that God gives you wisdom on that. And again, I just want to say God bless you for your work there. That's a wonderful work that you're doing there, and I'm happy to hear about it. Okay, we're hitting the lightning round now. I'm going to try to answer these questions more quickly. My moderator has assaulted me with a, a bunch of questions that I'm supposed to answer quickly. So let's get going with this. Lightning round begins. Adonis asks, was Revelation written before or after 70 AD? What evidence do you use to support your conclusion? Uh, Adonis, I, I think the testimony of the early church fathers uh, and um, others would indicate, would very much lean towards the idea that it was written after 70 AD. I'm really not conversant with all the um, arguments on it, to be honest, other than I think um, that some of the earliest Christian writers make the reference to Paul writing, excuse me, Paul, John writing Revelation on Patmos um, after the other apostles had died, and uh, in the reign, was it of Domitian? I'm trying to remember, and in the reign of a specific Roman emperor that would have been towards the end of the first century, not in 70 AD. So, uh, Adonis, I, I think that that's um, the most compelling evidence, and I, I'm really not aware of compelling reasons to believe that Revelation was written before 70 AD, other than trying to make it fit within certain um, uh, eschatological perspectives, such as the preterist perspective or the full preterist perspective. Thank you for that question, Adana. Laura asks, good afternoon. What is a Rima word? Is a Rima word a way of God speaking personally to me? Okay. Um, the Bible uses this term, Rima, uh, to refer to a word. The Bible uses, again, I, forgive me if, if I'm mixing some of this up. So I'm, I'm speaking in generalities and principles here, answering this just off the top of my sometimes confused head. But I, I'm thinking that we're talking about the distinction between rhema and logos. Uh, although I'm, I'm flashing my mind whether or not rhema is a Hebrew word or Greek. Again, forget about that. I'll just say of the variety of words that the Bible uses to translate the idea of a word, Rhema is a word that often has a more spontaneous, personal sense to it in context. Um, the word of the Lord came to a person, and it would have that sense more of a rhema word in that sense. However, it's really to be determined contextually. It's wrong to say that every time the Bible uses the word rhema, that it has this immediate, personal, spontaneous sense, because it's not like that. Sometimes the Bible uses these words interchangeably. But when people speak of, in just common Christianese, a rhema word from God, that's what they're referring to, something that is more spontaneous and personal. Although the Bible does not use that word rhema, as a word for God, a uh, spontaneous personal word from God in the Bible in every sense, not at all. But that, that's the sense in what it means. Look, uh, we have God's word. God's word is made personal to us by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's just simply what we should do. We should read our Bibles and ask God that by his spirit, he would continually make it alive for us. I, I do believe that God communicates to people today. I do believe that, but I don't believe that we should seek after that. If you're going to seek after a word from God, seek it in the Bible that he's given you. 
Now, now God may of his own accord communicate with the believer as he pleases. Yes, of course, he's God. He can do that. But that's not on the same level as the Bible itself. Hope that's helpful. Next question comes from Stacy, who asks, what does it mean to be separated from the world? Stacy, uh, you know, the world has an attitude about culture, about men and women, about sexuality, about wealth, about poverty, about success, about importance, about but what, what we need to do is say, I'm going to separate my thinking from what the world says about that, and I'm going to align it with what the Bible says about it. Now, there might be a few places, not many for sure, where there's a lot of overlap between what the world says and what the Bible says, but not much. So to separate from the world is to say, I'm not going to allow my mind to be conformed to this world, but I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, as it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So I think that is primarily the idea to separate ourselves from the world. Not, not so much physically. Jesus said that we should be in the world, but not of the world. So being not of the world, I think primarily is a battle that happens in the mind. And we need to have our minds renewed as Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Thank you for that question there, Stacy. Uh, Laura asks, um, I'm going where the pastor is female. Her husband is also a pastor from the Assemblies of God. Am I doing the wrong thing? Laura, I would have to know a lot more about your church situation to know that. If that was the best church within a practical distance for you to go to, that you go to, then I would say, okay, it's not good. Um, I'm of the persuasion uh, that... um, God has not called women to pastoral ministry in the sense of being pastors over a congregation in general. Uh, that I've got a lot of background work on that here on my YouTube channel. You can look it up if you please. And, and so I don't think that that's good for a church to have that. But it might be that all things considered, that might be the best church within a practical distance for you to attend, for you to go to. If that were the case, then you should go to it. So... Um, I think you just got to look at it that way. If you have a better option, Laura, take the better option. Next question comes from Kevin. Can we give God permission to do something in our life? Will God wait for us to align ourselves with his will before he acts? Can we not allow a certain work of God until we submit to God? Kevin, well, yes, in general. Now, of course, listen, God is God and he can do whatever he wants to do. If God wants to act without our belief, before our belief, in spite of our unbelief, uh, in spite of our lack of submission. God can certainly do that. Of course, he's God. He can do whatever he pleases. But there's many times where God waits, where he holds back in the doing of his work until his people believe, until his people surrender, until his people repent, until his people commit. And again, It's not that God is unable to work without his people doing those things, but rather that God has chosen to withhold his work until his people get in alignment with him. And God is free to choose that. If God is free to do whatever he wants to do, then he's free to do that, to say, I'm going to withhold my work until my people come into better alignment with my will. So really, that's the way to think of it there, Kevin. Thanks for that question. Banks asked, I saw that you used verses from Acts, Mark, and Revelation to show the concept of real choice. Are there other verses that could be used to show real choice? Banks, um, any verse in the Bible that makes an appeal to the will of a person, choose this, do that, any verse that makes an appeal to the will of an individual, I think is a verse that speaks of the fact that God has created us as men and women who have real choices. We can choose to do things or not to do things. Any verse. The Bible's filled with these. And you can also say that any verse that is an encouragement for us to do something is a 
encouragement for us to make a real choice and do it. Um, God says to believe, be strong and courageous. All right, well, I, I got a choice. Am I going to be strong and courageous or not? Am I going to do it or not? Am I going to obey him or not? So really, Banks, it, it's, it's woven within the entire warp and woof of the Bible. This appeal to men and women as people who are capable of making real choices as those who are not programmed as robots, so to speak. Uh, next question comes from Neri, who asks, in the story of Daniel, how do we know what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Daniel was being thrown into the lion's den by King Darius? Um, well, Neri, the bottom line is we don't know, but, but I would suggest that they had died. I think Daniel had an extraordinary long life, uh, maybe for resumes, but the bottom line, that was God's will. Uh, it would not have been a surprise at all if his three companions passed away before he did. So uh, I would just say that what happened with Daniel in the lion's den happened very late in Daniel's life. And it's not unreasonable to think at all that his three companions had passed away before that. That's the most immediate answer I would give. Uh, Grandma asks, how was it that the book of the covenant was lost for generations until it was found in the house of the Lord and shown to King Josiah? Was it ignored by all those generations rather than lost? Grandma, I, I think what we're talking about here is that the book of the covenant, the, the law of God, uh, the, the books of the Bible that existed up to that point, uh, they existed, they were there, but they were lost out of neglect. They were lost because nobody cared to look them up. Uh, if anybody said, hey, I want to know what the book of the law says, they, they could find it, but nobody cared. So things can be lost because nobody knows where to find them, or things can be lost because people are filled with neglect and don't care to look for them. It, it's really the latter and not the former. They, they could find it if they wanted to, but they didn't want to. And that was part of the great decline of spirituality in that era in the history of the kingdom of Judah. Thanks for that question. Anna Hui asks, blessings from Newport, Washington. Jesus says the dead in Christ will rise through. Uh, when do the prophets of old rise? Um, Anna Hui, I, I don't know if I can answer specifically, but I'm going to give you a suggestion. I believe that the believing dead before Christ were those prisoners, so to speak, delivered by the finished, accomplished payment of Jesus on the cross, and Jesus led captivity captive and took them from the bosom of Abraham, where they were in some sense imprisoned, and delivered them to heaven, where they immediately experienced the resurrection. I would even say it's that, or it's when all God's people experienced resurrection, or the rest of God's people. So I, I would incline more to the former that it was part of the work that Jesus did after his death and before his resurrection was made clear. Um, he descended to the earth and he uh, led captivity captive. So that, that's how I would explain it. Then final questions from Amy. Hi, Pastor David. I'm struggling with my Bible reading and study. I feel overwhelmed when deciding how much to read and making sure I retain what I'm reading. Do you have a simpler way that I can do this? Mm, Amy, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that it's a struggle for you. But there's times when it is. Amy, I want you to understand that part of what you're experiencing is a spiritual battle, a genuine spiritual battle. If I could just put it simply, the world, the flesh, and the devil do not want you to be reading your Bible. And so they're going to throw up whatever obstacle they can to, if they can't stop you from doing it, they want to make it as miserable as possible as they can for you. So um, keep that in mind. I'll give you, Amy, the prescription that I give to many people. Um, read the Bible chapter by chapter. And maybe you just do a chapter a day. Maybe you do more than one chapter. Read the Bible chapter by chapter. And this is what I want you to do. Hold on. I found this and I got it. This is an old spiral book of mine. And what I did in this old spiral book was I went through the Bible chapter by chapter and I wrote a one sentence summary of every chapter in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And I've done this a few times. 
Let me tell you, I think that that's a marvelous, marvelous minute. It makes you pay attention. Again, you're not writing a diary. You're writing a one-sentence summary of every chapter in the Bible. I think that'll help you pay attention. And uh, then if you just do one chapter a day, fine. You've gotten benefit from that. And uh, you'll be, you'll think this is something wonderful. I have it written right there, 84 to 85. I did this 1984 to 1985. Man, that's a long time ago. Okay, anyway, uh, that's what I would recommend to you, Amy. Uh, realize it's a spiritual battle. Do something very practical, like just read the Bible chapter by chapter and write a one-sentence summary of every chapter, not more than one sentence, and uh, continue on. Don't quit, because the Lord wants to meet you in his word. All right, everybody, I got a special announcement before we leave it for the day. Again, next week, we're also going to start at one o'clock in the afternoon, West Coast time in the United States, whatever time that is for you, one hour later than we normally start. Please join us next week at one o'clock Pacific time in the United States, whatever time it is for you. And again, I'm so pleased that you could join us today. Thank you, moderator. Thank you, team. God bless you and pray that you have a wonderful, blessed week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.